Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. It was a Wednesday, March 30th. I had just been to the gym and got home, and you know the story. I was working on Renee's computer, and uh, that's, that's when the event occurred. And I kind of think, I don't know what you think, but I kind of think that it's miraculous that a mere two months later, I'm able to stand up and get back into the Word. God is good. And as I was laying in the hospital, I was thinking, well, this could be my life. This is a very frustrating turn of events because I'm a preacher. That's all I do. It's the only thing I do well. I'm a preacher and I can't talk. I can't preach anymore. I couldn't even think clearly. And this could potentially be the rest of my life. That could be the end of my preaching career. It could financially devastate my family. And it could leave me laying in a bed for the rest of my life. And yet, God in his goodness, God in his kindness, God in his grace, and I can't credit anything other than God, because I did go through the stroke protocol, the medicines and the... uh, lowering my blood pressure and blood thinners and shots in the stomach, which hurt terribly. And I went through the stroke protocol, but even people who go through the stroke protocol don't always recover. My mom is one of them. So I'm very grateful for all the medical help, but I credit God for the fact that he raised me up again to teach his word again. And That Wednesday night, I was all prepared. I was going to come teach out of the book of Amos. I was all set to go in Amos 6. I was all studied up, and I had to call Tom and Micah and say, I won't be there tonight. I'm sick. That's all I thought it was. I just need to sleep. I'm going to be better. And so we took a two-month break, (laughs) and, and I'm able to pick up the Bible again. Well, I shouldn't say a two-month break. Tom was nice enough to take care of the next couple of Wednesdays for me. But in my experience, in my life, it was two months of waiting to get back to what I was prepared to talk about two months ago. And I want to now just kind of get through Amos. I'm anxious to get through this book now and move on. I want to get on to Micah. So... I'm very, very grateful that God saw fit to let me handle his word again because he could have shut me down completely, and he didn't. He let me handle his word again. Many years ago, I mean, this is a lot of years ago. This is when I was in college. I met one of my heroes whose name is Peter Erskine. I don't know if that will mean anything to any of you, But at the time, he was the drummer in uh, the Stan Kenton band. And he was just a young guy. He was just a year older than me and all this hair. And, you know, just a great drummer. 
and later he became the drummer in Weather Report, and you know, to this day you can find him on the internet, Peter Erskine, great jazz drummer. Well, he was one of my heroes, and I got to sit and talk with him in the middle of the afternoon. Well, I'd asked him, you know, where do you get this, this fire that you play with? Where, where does that come from? And he said, every time I play, I realize this could be the last time I ever get to play. And I want the last time I ever played to be really good. And I thought, what a great outlook for life. And so I carried that outlook into my musical career. But now here I stand realizing that every time I preach, it could be the last time I preach. Because I didn't know when I was preparing to be here two months ago on a Wednesday night, I didn't know that all of a sudden I was going to be completely incapable. I didn't know that everything was just going to stop. And that meant that the previous Sunday was the last time I ever got to preach. And so my perspective now is I'm grateful every time I get to preach. Every time I get to dig into his word, every time that I get to teach his word, every time that I get to, to handle the word of God, I'm grateful. And I think for a while I kind of took that for granted. I just always thought, well, there will be next week. If I've left something dangling, I'll get it next week. I'll get back to that. I, and I just always assumed that I'd have next week. And then God said, you don't get any more weeks. <laughs> Your weeks have stopped. You don't get next week. And when I was recovering, when the brain fog lifted, I went back and listened to what I taught the last time I taught. And I went back and listened to the Gladeville Conference, and I listened to the last Sunday morning here. And uh, number one, I'm glad to report that I agree with myself still, so that's a good thing. But secondly, I heard how nimble I was and quick I was and how easily I could improvise and how on top of it it was. And I, I thought, that guy's good. That guy knows what he's doing. I hope to be that guy again someday. And then God said, well, you're going to get to me. <laughs> you're going to get to come back and handle my word. Now I'm keenly aware that every time I preach, every time I teach, every time I open my Bible, it might be the last time. And that perspective has made me play with fervor. <laughs> that perspective has made me thankful and more empathetic and more compassionate. And I've learned a lot in the two months since the last Wednesday I was standing here. So turn to Amos 6. Let's talk about the book of Amos. I need to bring everybody up to date. I need to bring everyone up to this point. We were teaching in 2 Kings, and we reached the point in 2 Kings where we were in Jeroboam II, and the time of the prophets coming to tell Israel that they were going to go into the Assyrian captivity. And some of the prophets, like Jonah, is actually mentioned by name there in 2 Kings. And so I said, why don't we take a moment right here, stick a pin right in that part of 2 Kings, and let's go see what this first crop of prophets have said, and then we'll go back to 2 Kings and finish up the book. And so that was the master plan. 
the first part of the book of Amos, who is the second of the minor prophets that we've taken a look at, but the first part of the book of Amos, right up until chapter 6, is just all Amos predicting that God is going to do something disastrous to Israel, but the first six chapters are really God laying out his case. God is telling them why he has a cause against them. He's explaining that he has given them the law and that he has expected them to follow it and he has given them this land and he has given them protection from their enemies and he has done everything he said he would do and they agreed that they were going to do the law and they were going to worship God and now the northern tribes have split off from the southern tribes and under Jeroboam the first they have gone into false worship they have set up golden calves in the northern areas they've begun their own priesthood they've gone into a different form of worship than what God called them to they still kind of kept Yahweh around but it was Yahweh and these other gods and so God has now said I have a cause against you because I told you from the beginning that it was me and only me the first couple of commandments start with you'll have no other God before me I mean it starts right there the words of the covenant begin with you will have no other gods before me and they had gone into all kinds of idolatry in the midst of that because they had had a lot of good years the high and the mighty and the rich and the well-to-do of Israel had begun to oppress the lower classes of people and God is upset with them for doing this because since they were all Israelites they should be treating each other as brethren and now they're treating them as chattel as something they could sell as something they could trade for a pair of sandals and so God is upset about the way that they're treating the people and you're going to see that at the beginning of chapter 6 tonight we're going to try to do chapter 6 and chapter 7 because chapter 6 isn't that long but chapter 6 is one more time the fifth of these proclamations by God where he's laying out his cause against Israel and telling them that something terrible is going to happen they're going to go into this oppression into the Assyrian captivity and then chapter 7 has to do with the beginning of visions that Amos is having and Amos is going to say in chapter 7 I'm not a prophet I'm not even the son of a prophet I didn't go to the school of the prophets I am not in fact I was a, a herder of cattle I was out just doing my job and God decided that he was going to speak through me and gave me these things to tell you in his prophecies Jeroboam is Jeroboam the second is predicted to die and then his family is going to die and his family is going to his posterity is going to be wiped out so that the throne doesn't go to his posterity and these are all things that Amos is proclaiming and Amaziah his priest hears these predictions and says well I'm going to go tell the king that you're walking around Israel saying that the king is going to get killed and his posterity is going to get killed and so in chapter 7 we're also going to see the natural reaction of human beings to God saying this is what I'm going to do their reaction is like it always is their reaction is no you won't no we're fine look how good we're doing no we're mighty we're powerful we're secure we're safe we're fine also in chapter 7 you're going to see a bit of intercession 
on Amos's part as he becomes, I think, an Old Testament type of our need for an intercessor. Because were there not an intercessor speaking on behalf of Israel to God, God's intention, at least stated intention, is to wipe them out completely. And Amos intercedes and says, don't do that. So that kind of brings us up to date. Chapter 6 starts, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. So Zion, reference to Jerusalem, but then mountain of Samaria, reference to the northern kingdom. And then the whole rest of this prophecy is going to regard the northern kingdom. Even though he mentions Zion in there, the prophecy is about the northern tribes. The distinguished men of the foremost nations, those ten nations that make up the house of Israel, to whom the house of Israel comes. So he's talking about the distinguished men who feel secure. He's going to describe them in a minute. And he says, you all are lying to my people and giving them a false hope that they're fine, but God is against them for the things that they're doing. And so he's telling the distinguished men, the important people in Israel, that they're not to say things that God has not said. They're not to give people comfort when God is actually out to get them. You're going to see that coming up in chapter 7. Go over to Kalna and look. And go from there to Hamath the Great and go down to Gath of the Philistines. I have to talk about those three cities. Those are three city-states, each of which was grander than Israel was at this point. And more fortified and more capable and more people. And yet each of them had been conquered by invading armies. The first two, Kalna and Hamath, had actually been destroyed by, believe it or not, the Arameans, the very people who are going to come take Israel. And the third of them had been conquered by the uh, king of the south. And so the point of Amos bringing this up is saying, look at these three cities. Are you better than them? And yet every one of them has been destroyed. Do you think you can't be destroyed? Do you think you can't be conquered? So he says... Go over to Kalna and look, and go from there to Hamath the Great, he even calls it. Then go to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity? Or would you bring near the seat of violence those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves in the midst of their stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp. And like David, they have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. And yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So here's the situation. You've got these people who feel that they're fine, the high and mighty, the leadership in Israel, but they haven't even stopped to consider that the larger portion of Israel has turned to idol worship. They haven't grieved over the way that Israel has left their God. They haven't 
interceded for them, all they've done is oppress them and sell them and use them. And so God is building his case against them. Therefore, verse 7, therefore they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles. In other words, the high and mighty, the ones who are on their comfortable couches, when the exile comes, they'll be first. God's going to clear them out of the land and take them into servitude first, which is the way that most conquering armies worked. They would go after the rich, the princes, the high and mighty. You know that uh, in the Babylonian captivity, the first wave of deportees was exactly that, the educated, the high and the mighty. The, that was Daniel's group. Daniel and his three friends went in the first deportation. And then in the second deportation, you see the common people, the people on the streets. So in God's sense of fairness, he's saying, you're comfortable now. You recline on your couches now. You anoint yourself with the finest oils now. I will make sure that you're the first to go into captivity. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawlers banqueting will pass away. He's talking about those that sprawl on a couch and eat all this fine food. Well, their banqueting is going to pass away. And then in verse 8, there's a real interesting kind of language that goes on here that I don't think we catch in the English versions. It says, the Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared. Now that phrase, the Lord God of hosts, would be most contemporarily translated as the sovereign God, the God who's in charge. God of hosts means I'm in charge of everyone. The armies of heaven, the inhabitants of the earth, every crawling bug, every person that lives, every angel above, every angel in the deep. I'm in charge of everything and everyone. We would just use the nickname, the sovereign God. And here he is declaring, making a promise by himself that he's going to punish Israel. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts has declared and said, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob, and I detest his citadels. That's the, the houses with the walls that are built up, the fortresses that they took so much confidence in. They were sure if they were in their fortresses that they were covered from anything that might get them. But he says, I detest his citadels, and therefore I will deliver up the city and all it contains. It's going to be delivered up because God is against them. And it's the sovereign God saying, I by myself declare this. He has sworn an oath by himself and said, I hate, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob. And it will be if 10 men are left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house, and he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, is anyone else with you? And that one will say, no one. Then he will answer and say, keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. Now, what this has to do with, I've read many, many commentaries on this, and there are a lot of opinions on what this is about. But the one that I find most satisfying 
is first off, the reference to an uncle is when someone died, it was up to their closest relative to take care of the burial. Sometimes they were gathered up and burned so that their disease would not go through the, uh, the house of Israel, but it was their job to take care of the dead bodies. Here's God declaring that if there are 10 people in a house, he's going to kill them all. So it's his way of saying, I'm going to wipe out Israel. And then he says, if there's one left, well, the common phraseology that was used for somebody who was left after a battle, someone who was left after everybody else was wiped out, is that they would say, praise the name of the Lord, I was saved. And he said, don't say that, because he's against you too. Don't even mention the name of the Lord. It's almost like, why would you stir him up? Why would you point out that you're alive? Why would you let him know? Just don't even mention the name of the Lord. That's how extensive the destruction is going to be. And that one will say, no one's left in the house. And then he will say, keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house into fragments. Now he has a couple of absurd examples to show them how absurd it is for men to think they can stand against God and that they'll somehow be the ones who are spared from God's punishment. Do horses run on rocks? The answer, of course, is no. And then he says, or does one plow them with oxen? The answer, of course, is no. You don't put a horse into the same bridle as oxen. And yet you have turned justice into poison. So the same way that the previous two examples were absurd, so is the way you're living. You've taken the justice of God, which is if you've got some food and your brother is hungry, you feed him. If someone's naked, you clothe them. If someone has no place to stay, you take care of them. And you've turned that justice upside down in favor of your own ego, in favor of your own enrichment. And that's just as absurd as the notion that you would uh, put both a horse and an ox into a bow together. You would never do that. Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness you've turned into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar and say, have we not by our own strength taken Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts. There's that name again. And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. That's the whole area. That's one end to the other. This nation is going to come at the will of God. God is going to use them. Now, as I've often mentioned, Jonah, who is also a prophet mentioned in 2 Kings, Jonah was sent by God to Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrians. And Jonah was told by God that God was going to wipe out that huge industrious trading city. You go and tell them that God is angry at them and he's going to wipe you out. And at the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah is upset because God doesn't do it. And then God gives him an object lesson because Jonah is upset about the gourd that was giving him shade. And he says, you're upset about a gourd that I would kill that. 
but you're not upset that I would wipe out a whole city, including women and children. What is your thinking on that? Well, the interesting part is that Nineveh actually repented in sackcloth and ashes. They believed Jonah's report, and God kept them intact. And now God is going to use that nation for his own purpose, which is to come down on Israel and wipe out Israel and take them into captivity. So when I look at Jonah, I've often said, I think it was God's intention from the very beginning not to kill them, not to wipe them out. His goal was to get them to repent because they were already in so much rebellion against God and they were a Gentile nation that God had to do something. The same way that he kept the king from having an affair with Sarah when Abraham lied about Sarah and God said, I kept you from having relations with her. This is the kind of God that we serve, the God of the Bible. He's able to keep a whole nation or a whole capital city from offending him to the degree that he would have to pour out some kind of judgment on them. So he sent Jonah to them in order to say, God's going to wipe you out, even though God's real intention, I think, was to make them repent because it was still his intention to use them to come down on Israel so that he could punish his people using those people that were Gentile nations. Now, that's a really, really sovereign God, but that's also the story that the Bible tells. And so you have to put all those pieces together in order to understand that this is all just one big fabric. And God is weaving his way through this fabric and making sure that he raises up nations and takes down nations and raises up cities and takes down cities so that he can demonstrate his power to his people. And that's what's important here. And that takes us to verse 7. Now, or that takes us to chapter 7. Now, The first part of this is a vision that is one of several visions that Amos is going to have through the remainder of this book. We're also going to see the king's reaction to these visions. But we're going to see Amos intercede with God right away because the first vision that God gives him is that there's going to be a locust swarm that's going to come eat up what is specifically said to be the latter harvest. After the king's harvest. Now what you have to understand about that is that when the first harvest happened, the king would then tax the harvest. And so the king and his household and all his people would all get to eat and have plenty of bread and have plenty of fineries because they got the first tithe off everybody and those were big taxes that everybody had to pay. So Israel was dependent on the second harvest so that they'd have enough food to get them through the winter until the next harvest. And God says, you don't get that. You don't get that food. I'm going to send locusts to wipe out your harvest. Well, the end result of that would be that Israel was going to starve to death. And so Amos intercedes and says, don't do that. You can't do that. They're just a small nation. Don't wipe them out that way. Here's what it says. Thus the Lord God showed me. And behold, he was forming a locust swarm. Oh dear, that was harder to say than I thought. He was forming a locust swarm. When the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. 
So after the king had taken the early stuff, then the second harvest would come up, and when that would come up, then he was going to destroy it through the locusts. And it came about, when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land, that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand, for he is small? And the Lord changed his mind about this and said, it shall not be. So now we're faced with the very important theological question, what just happened there? (laughs) Did God change his mind? Because we read in several places in the Bible that God doesn't change. We even read that he's not a man or the son of man that he should repent. He's He's not the son of man that he would change his mind. And now here it says he's changed his mind. What about that? Well, I think very much like the Jonah story, which is why I reminded you of that, I think very much like the Jonah story, God knows what the end is, but he's also teaching Amos how to intercede for people. God is using Amos as a prophet, and now he's teaching him how to be an intercessor for people. Because this is a vision. This didn't actually happen. Amos saw the vision, and then he came and said, God, don't do that. They're just a small people. They'll be wiped out if you wipe out their harvest. So God said, well, it shall not be. And I don't think that he, quote unquote, changed his mind in the way that we think of changing your mind. Like if Jeff had an idea and then I said, you know, let's think about it another way. And then he said, oh, you're right. That's a better way to do it. And then Jeff changed his mind. I think God simply turned from what he said he was going to do and got Amos to intercede And then God said, wait, I've got another plan. Because eventually, in a moment, you're going to find out what God's real plan was. Does that make sense? Okay, good. And it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land. This is verse 2. Then I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand for he is small? And the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. And thus the Lord God showed me. And behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire. And it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. So then God says, here's what I'm going to do. Instead of wiping out your crops and letting you die of hunger, I'm going to send my fire and it's going to burn all of Israel from the very top to the very farmland. I'm just going to burn the entire thing. Then I said, verse 5, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. And the Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. So he has showed some visions to Amos, and Amos has said, no, don't do that. Now, we see other examples in the Bible of this kind of thing. For instance, when God was declaring that he was going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham contended with him and said, well, are you going to destroy the righteous with the evil, with the unrighteous? What if there's 50 people? What if there's 50 righteous people in that town? And, and he even said, won't the judge of all the earth do right? That's where that phrase comes from. And God said, I won't wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah for 50 people. If I find 50, I won't do it. And then Abraham says, okay, now forgive me, but since I've got your ear, since I've already said one thing to you, let me say one more thing. What about 45? 
And God says, I won't do it for 45. Okay, well, that's good. But let me ask you one more thing. And then Abraham says again, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? Gets him all the way down to 10. And God agrees, I won't do it if I can find 10 righteous people there. And then what does God do? He sends an angel to go get Lot and his family and lead him out of the city, which takes the last righteous people out of the city, and then God pours out his wrath. Now, when Abraham was having that discussion with him, was he changing God's mind, or was he declaring the righteousness of God? I think that he was declaring the righteousness of God, and he was interceding because he did know that Lot and his family were still in that city. And he didn't want to see the righteous wiped out with the unrighteous. So I don't think God necessarily changes his mind in as much as I don't think that someone presents him with a better idea. And he goes, oh, good idea. I hadn't thought of that. I think he has already thought of the end from the beginning. And what's happening in these instances is that we're learning something about God which is that God's justice and mercy are being displayed, and we need to learn to intercede with God. So then a third time. Verse 7, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. Do you know what a plumb line is? Do we have any architects here? A plumb line is a piece of string with a piece of lead on the bottom of it. And because it has a piece of lead on it, on the bottom of it, it naturally makes a straight up and down line. No matter where you hold it, it's going to make a straight up and down line. So if you want to measure whether or not a wall was actually vertical, you could use a plumb line. And if the weight hung to one direction but the wall went another, you could know that the wall was wrong. The wall wasn't straight. And so God is saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use a plumb line, and I'm going to check on Israel to see whether they're straight. So he said, he was standing by a vertical wall, that makes sense, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. This is God saying, I'm going to prove that they're all Sideways, they're, they're not vertical, they're not upright. They're crooked. They're crooked by the fact that I have a plumb line to show them. And this is the very place, this is the very idea that lays behind straight sticks. You've heard me talk very often about straight sticks. That I could spend all my time pointing at everything that's wrong about religion in the world, and I could say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But then that would eat up all my time. All I'd ever be doing is saying, what's wrong? And I realized many years ago, if I concentrate on what's right, which I referred to as a straight stick, then if each of you has a straight stick, I don't have to point out the crooked sticks. You'll be able to compare the straight to the crooked. And so this is that idea. God is going to go with a plumb line to Israel and say, this is straight, and you're not. So I have put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be laid waste. Then shall I rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. 
Okay, so now when Amos carries that out, here's what God has said. He's laying the plumb line to Israel, and oh yeah, Jeroboam is going to uh, be destroyed with the sword and his household. Well, that's tantamount to being a political statement where you're calling for the assassination of the king. And so, of course, the king's ministers would come to the king and say, have you heard what Amos said? And, of course, they don't repeat any of the stuff about the visions of God. They just say, Amos is saying that you're going to be killed. And that's going to rile the king against Amos. But Amos turns out to be right. Verse 10. So then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. In other words, the things he is saying, the way that he's talking about going into captivity, the way that he's talking about the destruction of the king, the way that he's saying the high and mighty are going to be pulled down, and they're the first to go into captivity, that no longer can the house of Israel, and it's not, they, they can't take it anymore. They can't listen to him anymore. For thus Amos says, verse 11, for thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. And then Amaziah said to Amos, go you seer, flee away to the land of Judah and there eat bread and there do your prophesying. In other words, the land of Israel can't take it anymore. You need to go to Judah. You need to go down to Jerusalem, go down there and eat and do your prophesying thing. Do it down there, but get out of Israel because we don't want to hear this anymore, which is the way that people naturally react. This is the word of God. God has sworn an oath by himself. And rather than repent, which Nineveh did, rather than repent and realize we have the promises and the oracles and the prophets of God, rather than repent and return to God, they go, you, you need to leave. Don't tell us about that stuff anymore. We, we like the way our life is going. But no longer prophesy at Bethel. That's verse 13. For it is a sanctuary of the king and it is a royal residence. So now we know that Amos was in Bethel predicting the, the death of the king. And they, of course, are now throwing him out rather than listening seriously to what God has said. Verse 14. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and I am a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. And now hear the word of the Lord. You were saying, you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife will become a harlot in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled up by a measuring line. And you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Unclean soil is a reference to any Gentile nation. It was only Israel that was the place where God had placed his name. But if he was going to die in any of the Gentile nations, like, say, Assyria, 
then he was going to die on unclean soil. And the king understands that reference. His wife's going to become a harlot. His children are all going to be killed. His throne isn't going to go to his posterity. And he's going to die on unclean foreign soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Now, we know the rest of the history. We know the rest of the story, which is that Israel indeed does end up going into Assyria. Everything that Amos said was absolutely right. But the very people who were about to be exiled, the very people who God had sworn an oath to, those very people wouldn't listen, even though God chose a herdsman, a guy who grew figs, and said, you, I choose you, now you go and tell Israel this. And they refused to listen because they were comfortable, because they were high and mighty, because they were secure in their land. And so they wouldn't listen to, you're not going to be secure in your land. You're not going to be the high and mighty anymore. And God is going to take your land and let it lay fallow while you are in the Assyrian captivity, which God is going to bring about to you, the exiles, to Israel. Now, when we get to chapter 8, God is going to show yet another vision to Amos. We will get to that next week. But I hope that tonight we kind of caught up to where we were in the book of Amos and that we're ready to go forward. There's only a couple more chapters in the book of Amos. And then we'll be able to look at the book of Micah. And then uh, we'll make it back to 2 Kings. And we will find out that after Jeroboam II, in the next 30 years, Israel has like five kings. And they all die through chicanery. They all die through bloodshed. They're killed, they're knifed, they're they're daggered. All these things happen to the next succession of kings, and then God sends them into exile. So everything that God said is true according to this story. Everything that men think is wrong according to this story. But God's truth overwhelms men. And even though men all think, no, it can't be like that. No, we'll just get rid of the prophet. No, we'll just ignore the word of God. That doesn't stop God from doing what God has already determined to be done. God is going to enact his will even to people who don't want it. You got it? Well, okay, then we're done tonight. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.